We are back in the book of Acts. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 22, we're going to start in the very last verse of Acts 22. We're going to start in Acts 22 verse 30, and we'll then read um, through Acts 23 verse 11. So starting in Acts 22 verse 30, um, we took a break from the book of Acts for a month or a little bit more. Um, as we kind of worked our way through the holidays, we're back in Acts. I've been preaching through this book. This book of Acts gives us the events that took place after Jesus returned back to heaven. So Jesus came to this earth. He lived, died, he rose again to pay for the sin of the world. He then ascended back to heaven. And Acts then tells us what happened next as the early Christians then went out to tell people about Jesus Christ. At this point in Acts, just to remind you where we are here, Paul has just finished his third and final missionary trip here in the book of Acts. He has just returned back to the city of Jerusalem. But the Jews there in Acts, in Acts 21, they then tried to kill Paul, uh, and he had to be rescued by Roman soldiers, um, arresting him, but essentially rescuing him. And in this text now, which is just on the following day after he was beaten by this hostile Jewish crowd, the following day now, the Roman tribune or the Roman commander is bringing Paul before a Jewish council to examine him. Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll read. Well, Father, we know one of the primary ways that you comfort your people in and through Christ is in and through your scriptures. And so we just turn our hearts to you now. Father, you tell us in the Old Testament, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And we know that's not just the physical mouth, but our spiritual hearts. Open them wide before you and you will fill them. And so I pray you to help us to come actively looking to engage with you now. I pray against a, a passivity in this room. I pray that all of us, Father, in and through Christ, would just picture ourselves coming to you, opening our hearts wide, opening our mouths and saying, Father, fill them, we pray. Give us what we need now, Lord, in and through your scriptures. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Reading Acts 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, the Roman tribune unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great 
clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the decision became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Amen. You know, the Christian life, at times, it is just not easy. It can actually be quite painful for God's people. And we see that uh, very clearly in the life of Paul. You know, Paul had tremendous success as a missionary, spreading the name of Jesus Christ everywhere. And yet the Christian life of Paul was also a life of great pain. He suffered tremendously on every missionary trip he took. He was was jailed, he was beaten, he was stoned, left for dead. And now that his missionary trips are over here in the book of Acts, you'd think it might get easier for Paul, but it doesn't. It just gets worse. These past two days for Paul have probably been two of the hardest days of his entire life. Just yesterday, Acts 21, he was nearly beaten to death by a mob of Jews. Had to be rescued by Roman soldiers who arrested him and took him in the barracks to whip him to figure out who he was. But then they realized he was a Roman soldier. It was illegal to whip him. So the Roman tribune has now brought Paul into this makeshift trial before the highest Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, consisting of the Jewish high priests and other religious leaders, a council that just a few years earlier had voted to crucify Christ. So things have not gotten better for Paul. They've just gotten worse We've actually seen a major shift now in the book of Acts. In the first part of Acts, Paul was, he was really on the offensive. He was a free man. He was going pretty much wherever he wanted to go. These three massive trips for Paul. But for the rest of Acts now, Paul is now on the defensive. He will be bound to the end of the book. He does not always now go where he wants to go. And Paul, after these three amazing trips he took, well, Paul will now endure five different trials. Just a lot of pain now for the Apostle Paul, and that, to some degree, is the Christian life. It's just painful at times. But one thing that we learn here in this text, we learn here that in our pain as Believers, in all of our afflictions, in all of our trials, our hardship, our difficulties, Christ is with us. Always there to strengthen, to encourage, to comfort, to carry His people in and through their pain. There are two primary things I think we can see in this text that we'll look at this morning. Here they are on the screen. Number one, we see Christian pain. But number two... We see Christ's presence. And the first thing we see here, number one, is just Christian pain. 
You know, after all the pain that Paul has already endured in his life, and particularly in the past two days, well, Paul now gets just a little bit more pain. This Roman tribune, this commander, he's been trying for two days now to figure out who Paul is. He's done everything, even trying to whip him to figure out who he is, why the Jews are so angry with him. And this Roman tribune wants to know primarily if Paul has broken any Roman laws. The Romans who were in control of Israel at this time, they didn't really care if people broke the Jewish religious laws. They, they didn't care about that, but they would not tolerate crimes against the Roman Empire. So this tribune now has Paul examined. And listen, it's easy to read very quickly through those verses and you kind of miss it. This was probably a very fearful setting for the Apostle Paul. You know, he's before the Sanhedrin. But just a few years earlier, I voted to kill his Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this Sanhedrin hates Paul now for preaching Christ. And there's also all these Romans in the room that had ultimately been the ones who executed Christ. And Paul, standing here now in this room, makeshift trial, he is probably still very bloody and bruised from the beating he took yesterday. And things now just get worse. If you look again at Acts 23.1, starts with this. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. It was just kind of an opening statement from Paul. It was, it was probably Paul's way of offering a, a, an opening plea of not guilty. I have lived before God with a clear conscience all of my life. Paul was not saying there that he was sinless. It's not what he was saying. Paul was very aware of his own sin. Paul called himself in the Bible the foremost of sinners. This was probably just Paul's way of saying that he had committed no crime that he was aware of. No crime against Rome, no crime against the, the Jewish people. But one person here rejects Paul's opening statement. If you look again at verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now this, this high priest Ananias was a notoriously bad high priest in, Jewish, in, in Israel's history. Josephus, a Jewish historian, said that this Ananias was unethical. He was a hoarder of money. He was very quick-tempered. And he was known for his severity. And this quick-tempered high priest just ordered his guards to strike or to slap maybe with the back of the hand or to punch Paul in the mouth. It was a sign that Ananias rejected Paul's opening statement. He did not believe Paul was innocent. But this strike by Ananias in this room was illegal. Contrary to Jewish law, as Paul will say in a second here, contrary to Jewish law to punish a Jew, which Paul was by birth, without a proper trial. Jewish law said this, He who strikes the cheek of an Israelite without a proper trial strikes, as it were, the glory of God. Strikes, as it were, God himself. And Paul now reacts to what just happened. You look at verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? I think it was probably a very firm response by the Apostle Paul in this room, and a little bit surprising from Paul. Paul had recently written this in 1 Corinthians 4.12. He said, when we Christians are reviled, we bless in return. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat or or we try to calm or console or appease those who slandered us. Or, as Jesus had said, when someone strikes us on one cheek, we offer them the other cheek. And yet Paul, right here, reviled in this room, persecuted, struck on the cheek, he doesn't just take it. He doesn't just turn the other cheek. He doesn't just bless this high priest and try to calm and console or appease him. No, Paul basically just called a curse down on him. You struck me unlawfully and God will now strike you. And Paul, in just a second here, he will apologize just a bit. So it is possible that Paul just kind of lost his temper here a little bit. Paul, like every Christian, he was still a fallen, broken man. He was forgiven through faith in Christ like every Christian, but he still had sin within him. He still fought against sin. And listen, Paul in this room, he had just been sucker punched. I mean, it may have come out of nowhere. He didn't see it coming. He may have now had blood trickling out the side of his mouth. It may have triggered his fight or flight reflex. And Paul was not ready to flee. And he responded ready to fight. I.H. Marshall says this. He says, we should not dismiss as a possible explanation here that Paul lost his temper. With verse 5, which we'll see in a second giving something of an apology. Paul was both human and sinful, and we do not need to credit him with a sinless perfection that he himself never claimed. Amen. Do you realize when you read through the Bible that every one of the little heroes in the Bible, there is always a tragic flaw? All of them. There's always a flaw with the people in the Bible. And that's to remind us that we are all sinful human beings. And there's only one supreme hero. That is the Lord Jesus Christ who never sinned once. So it's possible he lost his temper here. But listen, even if Paul did lose his temper here a bit, that does not mean that all he just said was sinful or off target. No, Paul knows that this strike was unlawful. Now, he doesn't yet know that the guy who ordered the strike is the the high priest, but he knows that whoever that guy is who ordered this strike, that guy is a fraud. You're judging me according to Jewish law, and yet you just struck me contrary to Jewish law. You whitewash wall, which was a term for a hypocrite. Clean on the surface, looking holy, looking religious, but under the surface, dirty, sinful, in the heart, a whitewashed wall, and Paul basically pronounced a curse on him. You struck me, God will strike you. But he then learns that this is the high priest, and he does seem to apologize to some degree. If you look at verse 4 again, those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. 
Paul, he just quoted right there from Exodus 22, Jewish law, which said this, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Paul knows that this man is a crook. He's a hypocrite. But he also knows God wants him to respect the office of high priest. He shouldn't curse a high priest, no matter matter how bad the man is. So Paul backs off. John Stott says this, When it is pointed out that Paul has crossed that line into disrespect, he acknowledges it. And listen, you you, you think of what Paul just did in this room. I think this really is a mark of maturity with the Apostle Paul. You know, no Christian is, is sinless. We can all, at times, lose our temper, not give proper honor. We can cross certain lines. We can sin. But a mark of Christian maturity is that when you see your sin, When you see your error or the crossing of lines or the disrespect you have just shown somebody, you own it. You admit you're wrong, you confess, you you ask forgiveness. I had to do it this week. I typically have to do it many times every week. One in particular this week. I knew I had responded to one of my daughters too firmly one evening, I was convicted about it that night, and I had to circle back around the next morning and ask her to forgive me, which she graciously did. You know, we will not be perfect as believers, but we can aim to be humble. And we can aim to own our actions, if and when they may have crossed the line, which Paul seems to have done here. But you just pause here now for a second and, and kind of think about this. What, what we've now just seen here with Paul is just more pain for the Apostle Paul. I mean, this man has already suffered a ton in his life. And in the past two days, he's standing there bruised and bloodied. And now he was sucker punched illegally and has to apologize to the guy who did it. It's a painful situation. And it's just another reminder here in Acts that the Christian life, it is painful. And listen, the Bible says that multiple times. We always lose track of this. We think, why? Why? It shouldn't be painful. If Jesus is God, if God has saved me and through Christ, I shouldn't be in pain. But that's not the way it works. The Bible is very clear that the Christian life will be painful. 1 Thessalonians 3.3, we are destined as Christians for afflictions. God has ordained that we would walk through afflictions. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or John 15.20, if they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will also persecute you. And it's a painful thing. It's just a painful thing. It, it just is. And and the heart is confused. The Christian heart is confused. It's confusing. It's why you can read through the book of Psalms and the psalmists are constantly crying out, Why, O God, do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? And it's a question in the heart of every Christian at times. Why, O God, if I'm righteous through faith in Christ, do I suffer? And, and listen, we, we don't know all the reasons why God has ordained, why God allows the suffering in this fallen world. But one thing we do know is this. 
It is only through pain. It is only through suffering, through loss, through death that we can experience as Christians more of Christ's life working in and through us. It's a principle in the Christian life. In order for you, Christian, to experience more of Christ's resurrection life working in and through you, you must die just a little bit more. Jesus said that unless a grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it remains alone. It's still just one solitary little grain. But if that grain goes into the ground and dies, it produces much fruit. And that's you in the Christian life. It is through death, it's through pain and loss that we end up bearing more fruit. If you want to become more like Christ as a Christian, you must die. Just a little bit more to your old ways of doing things in order that Christ might now live more through you. If you want more life in your marriage as a Christian, if you want more life in your marriage, you must die a little bit more to your old ways of doing things. You must die to your old habits and expectations in marriage. You and your spouse must stop your old dance in marriage. So that you can now learn a new dance in your marriage. But something has to die in order for there to be new life. It's a principle all through scripture. There is death that leads to this resurrection life. And listen, one thing in this life that causes us as Christians to die a little bit more. One thing that works that death, that works that principle into our souls is pain. It's suffering, it's it's tribulation, it's trial, it's hardship. All of them forms of death in order that Christ might live more through us. 2 Corinthians 4.1, Paul says it himself, here it is. For we Christians who live are always being given over to death. To pain, to suffering, to persecution, to hardship, to difficulty for Jesus' sake. Why? Here it is, the purpose, the purpose statement. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In order for there to be more resurrection life, there must be death. And pain is one thing that brings death. But it brings results in the end. I read a saying a few weeks back. Man, when I read it, I just stopped. Just love this saying. It goes like this. There are many things in this life that can be seen only through eyes that have cried. There are many things in this life That can be seen only through eyes that have cried. We do not like the pain. We do not like the grief, the loss, and understandably so. But there is something about pain that is clarifying. It gives you a much greater spiritual vision. It helps you to see much more clearly the pain of other people. 
He gives you much greater compassion, understanding, empathy for the people around you. It makes you more like Christ. We are given over to death, Paul said, to pain and suffering in order that the life of Jesus might be manifested just a little bit more in our mortal flesh. Some things in this life can be seen only through eyes that have cried. So that's one thing we see in this text. Point one, Christian pain. But a second thing here then, point two, Christ's presence in our pain. You know, Paul here, you just picture him, knowing, I'd imagine he was in trouble. This this hostile counsel, he's already been struck illegally by the high priest. And he now, directed by the Holy Spirit, he comes up with this very shrewd move. If you look again at verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part of this council were Sadducees and other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Here's the gist of what's happening there. There were two main uh, parties of Jewish religious leaders back then. The Sadducees, who were quite narrow in the way they viewed life and Judaism. They, they, the Sadducees accepted only a handful of the Old Testament books. And because of that, they believed there were no angels, no spirits, no future resurrection. Because they rejected the Old Testament books that talked about those things. Now you can remember the Sadducees, I heard somebody say once, you can remember what the Sadducees believed like this. When their loved ones died, they were sad, you see, because they believed there was no resurrection and their loved ones were now gone forever. And now you will never forget what the Sadducees believed, right? But then there were also the Pharisees back in in Israel. They, They weren't nearly as narrow as the scribes when it came to how they viewed life in Judaism. They were really much more biblical in in these ways because they accepted all the Old Testament books. And therefore, because they did, they believed in angels and spirits and a future resurrection. The Pharisees in these ways were more biblical because the Bible clearly teaches that all those things are real, which the Pharisees believed. And here's the thing that's important for this situation. Paul had been raised as a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. So Paul was raised believing in angels and spirits and a resurrection like the half the people in the room here. And man, now that Paul had actually seen on his way to Damascus in Acts 9, now that he had actually seen the resurrected Jesus in person, well, Paul now really believed in the resurrection. And Paul had now gone out everywhere preaching about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calling everyone to repent and trust in Christ so that they might also in the future be raised from the dead to eternal life like Jesus these leaders in this room, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they didn't like at all that Paul had been preaching about Christ. They believed Jesus was a false Messiah, an imposter. They wanted to kill Paul for preaching about Christ and his resurrection. They wanted to hide that truth. But Paul now, knowing there were both Pharisees and Sadducees in this room, 
Some who believed in a general resurrection and others who did not believe in it. Well, Paul just now leverages that to save his life. Help. I'm a Pharisee by birth. And I'm on trial here simply because I believe in a future resurrection. And the other Pharisees then in this room, they hear Paul say this, and now they're suspicious of the Sadducees and what the Sadducees are doing, and they're wondering if actually the Sadducees are just trying to kill Paul simply because he believes in resurrection. And some of the Pharisees now stood up, verse 9, and say, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if an angel or a spirit spoke to him? Now you can see just defending their theological position and happy to defend Paul if that meant defending the concept of resurrection. But Paul, directed by the Spirit, has now divided this room and has saved his life. If you look again at verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, man, if you track what's happened over the last two days, that is the third time now that the Romans have essentially had to rescue Paul from hostile Jewish crowds. Three times. They're now wanting to tear Paul apart here in this room. And I would imagine the Roman tribune wanted to tear the rest of his hair out. Because this guy's been trying for two days to figure out who Paul is. And he still doesn't know. And Paul's taken back to the barracks one more time. It had to be terrifying for Paul, I'm sure. Again, easy to miss it when you just read over that. It had to be a frightful Seen for Paul here. Wondering, I'd imagine, if he'd ever get out alive. Two days of pain. Bruised, bloodied, struck illegally already in this room. In front of the Sanhedrin that killed Christ. Paul may be losing heart. Maybe discouraged. Maybe hopeless now as he's taken back to the Roman barracks. Kent Hughes said this. This was one of the darkest nights of Paul's life. He was physically Emotionally and spiritually tired. Even the most optimistic person can experience a low after a battle. Consider Elijah in the Old Testament after he had a great victory and then just wanted God to take his life. He was so discouraged right after that. And Paul was in the depths. As he sat in the barracks, he was alone, dejected, dispirited. I wonder if you've been there. Feeling very alone as a Christian, very dejected, very dispirited, very hopeless, very discouraged because of some sort of pain around you? Were you not alone? The, 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 the many heroes in the Bible felt it as well. I think Paul probably felt it right now. And then we read verse 11. If you look at it again. The following night... The Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. It's an amazing verse. The resurrected Christ again appears to Paul in his room at night. 
And listen, it doesn't say right there that this was just a vision, which Paul had had at other times. It could have been, but it doesn't say that. It says the Lord stood by Paul. And the implication there is that Jesus himself was now somehow in Paul's room. And his first words, take courage, Paul. Take heart, Paul. Be comforted. Be strengthened, Paul. Be encouraged. As you have testified about me here in Jerusalem, you must also testify me about me in Rome. Where Paul has been wanting to go for several chapters now to Rome. And he might have been totally despairing now that he would ever get to Rome. But Jesus has now promised, you must go to Rome, Paul, and testify about me there. Which means, Paul, you will not die here. And man, you, you think of this, I, I don't think there's any way we can possibly understand how comforting this would have been to the Apostle Paul. After two days of pain, maybe losing heart, discouraged, hopeless, but Jesus is there with Paul. Take courage, Paul. Take courage, Paul. Take courage, Paul. So it's not just Christian pain in this text. It's also Christ's presence in the midst of Christian pain. And you know, if we step back from this text and we just kind of look at this whole thing in its entirety, I do think we can see a couple things here. One, we, we can see here with Paul's suffering, we see here just a little picture of Christ's suffering. I've said this before, but in this part of the book of Acts, Paul's suffering kind of mirrors, to some degree, the suffering that Christ endured just a few years earlier. And we see it in this text. Jesus, just like Paul, had also stood before the Sanhedrin. And Jesus, just like Paul, was also illegally struck. John 18, 22 says this, When Jesus had said these things in the council of the Sanhedrin, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me illegally? Similar to Paul's Words. But you know one difference between Jesus and Paul before this Sanhedrin? Jesus didn't have to apologize. Jesus did not in any way lose his temper, fail to give proper honor. He crossed no lines. He did not sin. No First Peter one twenty two. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to his Father who judges justly. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree in order that everyone who now turns from sin and trusts in Christ might be forgiven eternally. We just see in this text here with Paul's suffering a little picture of Christ's suffering. Paul now walking a similar path to the one that Christ had walked, a path of pain. And that to some degree is the path of every believer. 
walking in the footsteps of Christ, a path of pain like Christ. Philippians 3.10 We share Christ's sufferings as Christians, becoming like Him in His death. 2 Corinthians 1.5 For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too, as He comforts us in our sufferings. 1 Peter 4.13 But rejoice, Christian, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. The, the Christian journey in this life It is a journey of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's what it is. Walking through pain like Christ, in the footsteps of Christ, in order that we then might experience more of the resurrection life of Christ working in us. We die that we might live. We cry that we might truly see. That's one thing we see in this text with Paul's pain here. It's a little, a little picture of the pain of Christ himself. A reminder that every Christian will walk a similar path in some ways. But another thing we see in this text with Paul and his pain, I think God is reminding all of us here in this text, He's reminding all of us that in our pain as believers, in all of our afflictions, our, our trials and our difficulties, Christ is with us. He is always there. He is always there with you, Christian, to strengthen you and to comfort you and to encourage you and to embolden you in your pain. Jesus may not be with you in the exact same way he was with Paul here. Uh, He may not show up physically in your room, but make no mistake about it. If you are truly united to Christ by faith, then Jesus is with you always in the person of the Holy Spirit. The very last sentence of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says this to you, Christian. He says, and behold, I am with you always. Through your worst sin, Christian, he does not leave you. He is able to hold all of you, even your worst sin, in your worst pain, in your worst trial. He does not leave you. He is with you. He's able to hold all of you and all of your pain. Psalm 91.15, God promises, I will be with you in trouble. 2 Timothy 4.17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. No matter what you face, Christian, or what, what you're in, Right now, Jesus is there. He is with you to comfort you, to strengthen you, to encourage you. And Jesus' words to you in your pain, take courage. Take courage. Take heart. Take heart, Christian. For it's not all finished. And the pain that you're experiencing now will ultimately lead to a resurrection life. Both in this life, but ultimately in the life to come. Pain is not the end of the story. Death is not the end. Resurrection life is the end. Resurrection life. Because Christ is raised, you will be raised. Both in this life and in 
the next life. Take courage, Christian. Jesus never promises in the Bible to keep you from all pain, but He does promise to be with you in all of your pain. And that makes all the difference. You know, if you walk with your little child through a dark forest or something scary, as long as that child knows that you are there, as long as that child has your hand, she knows she's okay. And she will make it. And listen, Christian, Jesus has promised to you that He will never let go of your hand. Ever. 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 With you. Always. And you know one of the ways Jesus is with you now as a believer in your pain? Well, He's not just in you, Christian. He's also in the body of Christ around you. And whatever pain you might be in right now, Christian, you can actually lean on Christ Himself by leaning on the people around you. And Christ in and through them comforts you in your pain. So let me encourage you to open your pain up to the safe believers around you in your community and lean on them. And in so doing, you lean on Christ. Listen, there's just very real pain in the Christian life. We see it all through Acts. We see it with the Apostle Paul. But there's also a very real Christ. A living, a resurrected, and always present Christ in your pain. May God help you today, Christian, and always to be conscious of Christ's presence in your pain. We just lose it, don't we? We just lose sight of the fact that He is there. May God help you to be conscious of Christ's presence with you at all time, standing beside you, all around you. And may God help you now in your pain to find comfort in and through the very real presence of Christ. Father, we thank you that you are not a God distant. That you're not a God who came down to this earth and took the penalty for our sin and then disappeared. But Lord Jesus, you then sent your spirit, your own spirit, the spirit of Christ, the Bible says. And your spirit through a simple faith in you, Lord Jesus, now indwells us within us, groaning within us, interceding, praying within us, the comforter with us at all times, encouraging, exhorting us, caring for us, watching over us, directing us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that one of your names is Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you, Jesus, you promise, I will be with you always. I am with you. I am with you now in the person of the Holy Spirit, much more intimately than I was when I was here in the flesh, because now my spirit is actually inside of you. And inside of the people around you, I am with you. So Lord, help us to believe that. Help us, Father, and those who are in this room that are not yet united to Christ and you're not fully with them yet in this comforting way, that you turn their hearts to Christ today. You'd help them to cry out for mercy, Lord God, that they might experience this Christ who is always with us in pain. Father, we thank you for your 
healing, comforting presence in and through the Holy Spirit. And Father, as we have received, may we now freely give to those around us. And may we now just overflow with the comforting, encouraging presence of the Lord Jesus Christ for others who are in pain. For our spouse, for our children, for our neighbors, for our co-workers. May we, Lord God, be like you. May we, Father, may we have the comforting presence that you possess. May we be with others in their pain. May we resist the urge to just try to fix all the pain around us. May we learn just to be there. Romans, the book of Romans, weep with those who weep. You teach us, Lord, how to weep. Teach us to weep with those who weep, Lord. We thank you that the tears are not in vain. That it is that there are many things in this life that can be seen only by those who weep. So help us, Father, to give our pain to you. And may we find you to be a very real presence in our pain. In the name of Jesus, amen.